Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Lauren Wang, to our show today. Lauren is the founder and CEO of The Flex Company, a top-selling sustainable period care brand known for creating a more comfortable period for everyone. Lauren never intended to start a medical device company and never looked at herself as an entrepreneur. Before she started the business, she was more than a decade into a marketing career, working alongside founders and change makers in Silicon Valley. She was also suffering in silence for most of her life because of her painful periods and chronic yeast infections, which she believes was being brought on by her constant use of tampons. In the summer of 2004, Lauren started doing research in her own bathroom. She tested every tampon and menstrual cup on the market for herself and started chatting with her friends about everything that she was discovering. Lauren realized she had to do something to help menstruators everywhere have a better experience when on their period. And by August 2015, she co-founded the Flex Company, and now the business is helping millions of people, bringing in millions of revenue, and is sold in over 25,000 retailers in the U.S. We talked to Lauren about her incredible story from her upbringing and why the focus of being financially independent was so important to her, especially being the first in her family to graduate from college. We also talk about her journey building a medical device company with no experience and why she decided to take the leap despite not thinking she was cut out to be the CEO and face of the business. Lauren also shares how she hustled her way from bootstrapping the business in the early days to almost bankrupting herself to then raising millions of dollars from top investors. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Hi, Yasmin. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so inspired by you. I've been following your journey as a fellow LAer, you know, from when you guys started and to see how far you've come in such a short amount of time is really inspiring. So I'm so glad Jesse Draper connected us because I know this story is going to really inspire so many people. So thank you again for joining. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Yes, a lot for us to get into. So I want to start with your upbringing. You know, I'm really fascinated about your childhood because you were the eldest of five and you have always worked and helped support your family financially from a really young age. So you have that grit and that hustle throughout, you know, so many aspects of your life. But how do you think your upbringing has really impacted the way you think about finances and really being financially independent? Oh, I love that question because it is about so much more than just grit and determination. <laughs> Having a hold of your finances and your personal life really translates to your business pretty well, I think, especially as a female founder, because those investment dollars can be very difficult to come by. But just a quick background on that. I moved out of my house, my parents' house, when I was about 15 years old and became financially independent by 16 and actually became legally emancipated. And I had, so by that age, I had become pretty much financially independent 
I did stay in school, but decided it would be best to get my GED by the time I was about 18 years old and had to become fully financially independent. And I had been working in restaurants and working on the internet, for lack of a better term, because this is back in 2001, where I was building websites. And those skills eventually landed me a job at IBM when I was 19. So at the point that I kind of had moved out and was fully financially independent, I'd been building hard skills, kind of in the background, preparing myself for that big jump. And that kind of passion for supporting myself and being independent led to my belief in myself to create my own startup. And I was 29 when I started it. We now generate tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars a year and have for many years. And I really, I think it started from the very beginning of having having to figure out my own finances. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about how that IBM job was really your first job. And you didn't actually think you were going to be an entrepreneur. Like you thought you were going to kill it in marketing, kind of stay that stable path, right? Because you were financially stable at that point. And I'm curious, like, did you ever think you were going to go down the entrepreneurial path? Were you thinking about ideas at the time? Or did it... And we'll go through your health journey in a bit. But was that something that was on your mind? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Absolutely not. No, I, I really liked my steady paycheck. And, and in fact, I always thought marketing was fun and came to me rather, I don't want to say it was easy, but more easily than other things. And I thought I was going to go to law school. But because I kind of took this non-traditional path and I was working full time during the day and getting my undergrad degree at night, it took me five and a half years to graduate, get my degree in marketing. And I wanted to take a gap year and then apply to law school in California. And at that point, my friends had already kind of finished law school. Some of my older friends had finished law school and started practicing. And they said, you're nuts. Like you're making six figures at 25 and you know, you have all this marketing experience. You don't want to get into law. So I decided to just, you know, keep a corporate job in marketing, but I was really drawn to doing things in marketing that had a positive impact on the world. So I did nonprofit for a little while. I did lots of different things in marketing, but squarely in the steady paycheck, no desire to be an entrepreneur world. I just love hearing this because sometimes people think, you know, they need to be entrepreneurial from that young age, have that lemonade stand. And just to kind of hear how you had all these different life experiences and these hard skills, like it all makes sense now, right? Running flex, but it's cool to see how you've come full circle and are able to use all that with the business today. But I want to go back a little bit and talk a bit about your health journey. You know, you've been very open about having a horrible period and suffering silently for months, right? And I'd love for you to talk more about what was going on at the time, because so much of your own personal experience really sparked that idea for flex. Yeah. And and my idea for flex was never for me to be the founder. <laughs> Embarrassingly, looking back, I say it's embarrassing now because I had asked several people to be the CEO of Flex. I said, you know, I'll be your head of marketing. You're a startup founder. You know how to be a CEO. Will you be a CEO for this company and, and I'll be your head of marketing? And like they laughed, <laughs> mostly guys, and they said, you're you're fully capable of doing this on your own. Like, what are you, t- you're crazy. Like I have my own startup and, you know, <laughs> two, two of those people and one of them, their startup is 
not a startup. It's worth over $60 billion now. So it's kind of funny to look back and think that I asked that guy to be my CEO. But that goes to show you how little I kind of believed in myself and saw myself as an entrepreneur, but really saw myself as someone that could listen to customers and understand what their problems are and kind of develop things that would solve their problems. That's how I thought of myself. I still think of myself that way. That is my job as as a CEO is to kind of listen and understand to what our potential customers are thinking about, what their issues are. And I think I built that empathy because I felt my own period issues weren't being listened to and were being caused by traditional period products, tampons and pads, organic tampons. Turns out cotton inside of your body is not great for you. And I felt very cheated and lied to by this massive multi-billion dollar industry that kind of makes us go and buy these products every single month that nobody seems to love and nobody really seems to hate either people. Instead, we just kind of blame ourselves and blame our own bodies for having terrible periods. And I think it really comes from this like lack of education and lack of accountability on the part of just like society for for us not knowing that much about our own bodies and about menstruation. Because if we did, we'd demand better products. And if we demanded better products, more companies would be making those products to serve our needs. But it took me realizing that my tampons and pads were causing my yeast infections for me to really start looking at the space and talking to other people about their period problems too. Oh my gosh, we could, I'm so passionate about this. You are saying everything correctly in terms of the fact that we're so not educated, especially on women's health and bodies around what's going on in these simple lifestyle changes, product changes like tampons, nutritional changes really can make a world of a difference. And Mm -hmm. I actually didn't know about organic tampons. I was like, I noticed in my body that every time I would get my period, I'm like, I'm uncomfortable and I've helped my cramps. But when I use a pad or your disc, I'm like, this is even more amazing. So So it's great that- yeah, yeah, it's it's so much better. And I'm curious. So, you know, you were struggling for years and I believe it wasn't until you met with, I think, a holistic, a holistic practitioner, right? That told you, yeah. I'm not going to give you a subscription. I want you to stop wearing tampons. And I think that was what sparked you to try all these different alternatives. So I'd love for you to kind of speak through how you came across the idea for the disc, because it's a very unique product for women, even to this day. Yeah, it is a super unique product. I started out by trying, you know, I I had the nurse practitioner who you're right, was holistic, who said, I'm not writing another prescription for yeast infection medication until you quit using tampons. At the time, that was in 2011, I just moved to San Francisco. I'm originally from Georgia, as I think that you mentioned. And in Georgia, they didn't really care. They just write you a prescription and sent me on my way. But in San Francisco, all of a sudden, it was like, what are you doing using tampons? <laughs> I'm like, there's nothing else out there. I tried a menstrual cup. And at the time, there's really only one menstrual cup brand that was sold in the US. It's the brand that I think most people think of. I'm really proud because we sell more product than they do. And we have since 2020, which is kind of crazy in such a short period of time. But that was the only brand out there. And I found the product to be really uncomfortable and difficult to use. You had to previously in the original model, you had to trim the stem of the menstrual cup, which created a very sharp 
Mm. pointy edge. Um, (laughs) Being a physically active woman, it was very painful to sit down and go for runs and things like that. And I found it really difficult to remove. It would get stuck constantly. And then I had this like horrible nightmare experience of my menstrual cup getting stuck and not being able to get it out. So at that point, I'm like, there's just no way I'm using this thing. So I had done research and tried different period products from all over the world. And through that process, learned that every tampon, every single one, every brand, even like the small fringe brands, they're all made from the same handful of manufacturers. There's just a few manufacturers. There's nothing really different between tampon to tampon to tampon. They're just made from the same handful of folks and they're put into different boxes and sold to us as being really different. Same thing with pads. They're a commodity product. There's nothing like inherently wrong about commodity products. It's just that they're ubiquitous and therefore there's not really any room or need for meaningful innovation there. And when it came to menstrual cups, I felt like, well, maybe we can iterate on the design. And what I found after giving people different prototypes was that most American menstruators as a whole weren't interested in a product that they had to rinse and reuse. And people would say they wanted something more sustainable than tampons and pads. But when it came right down to it, if you are out at work, out at school, traveling, if you're very active, sometimes it's just not practical to be able to rinse something out in the public restroom. Sometimes you need to dispose or change of something in the middle of the day, especially if you have a very heavy flow. And so I, at this point, had pretty much shelved the idea and thought maybe the world just isn't ready for a better design menstrual cup. And I'm not a product designer, so I'm going to kind of scrap this idea. And that kind of set me on a path where I decided not to start this company at all. Hey, everyone. It's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. 
Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Interesting. And that's fascinating because yeah, you could be really intimidated. You're like, I don't have the background to create this. I don't think women will use it. I don't even know how to create it. So what was it that really pushed you to bring this idea into a product? Because I know you were still having your full-time job at the time. Yeah, I was. Well, a couple of things happened. One is I went to a dinner with a girlfriend and there was a product designer from Apple and she said, oh, you have to tell him about your idea for this period product. And I said, no, 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 I'm not doing it anymore. And and he said, well, why not? What's the issue? And so I told him about the lack of innovation for over a hundred years. And I you know, I saw this big problem in the market. No one at the time was talking about periods and no one was talking about menstrual health. And I told him about my infections and he said, you know, you're clearly a marketer. You're not a product designer. If you're a product designer, you would start with something that's already been manufactured. And I said, well, I took my designs to a manufacturer and they said that if I try making it, that they can't make it at scale. So I can show them a prototype, but they can't make millions of these products and we made tens of millions of discs last year. So like you have to be able to like really scale whatever it is that you've designed. And so I, I, I told him I had already looked at everything from dildos to diaphragms in terms of like products that sit inside of the vagina and that there is nothing that I felt at all that could be designed for, for menstruation. But the conversation got me thinking, I went back and decided just to like do another scan, do a little bit more research. And in that, like after, and this is after many, many years, I finally came across this product called Instead Soft Cup at the time. And it was being sold. I had never come across it before. And it is what I later called a disc. I named the category a disc. I coined the term in 2016. But at this time in 2015, when I found this product, I contacted the company and I said, oh my God, this product has all of the features that I want. It's more sustainable than a tampon, but it's disposable like a tampon, but it like lasts for 12 hours like a cup and it's so comfortable you can't feel it. But 
the materials, like there's newer material sciences out there that I wanted to make it out of. Like I wanted to make something that was plant-based. I wanted to, I wanted to improve on the design of the product. And I also wanted to change like the retail distribution and the branding and all this other stuff. So I pitched them an idea to work for them, to be able to sell their product And they said no. And so what I did was I used that as the basis for the design of our product. And I coined it a menstrual disc and ended up raising money behind this idea. I was very transparent with investors, told them the whole story, soup to nuts. Like I was designing my own other product, couldn't figure it out, found this one, fell in love with it, found a way to make it better out of materials that are more comfortable, that prevent more leaks. And this is how I'm going to make it. And this is how I'm going to sell it. And fast forward three months into Y Combinator, we ended up buying that other company. So now we sell their product and our product. So two different types of menstrual discs. Now we sell, I think, four or five different types of menstrual discs. (laughs) But we had two to start, which is really exciting. That is, I actually did not know that part of your story. That is so fascinating that you reached out to them. I knew you bought a company pretty early on, you know, after you raised some money, but that is awesome. And, you know, going back a little bit, it's interesting because while you were ideating and thinking about the different products, you were still in your full time job. So at what point in the timeline did you decide you were going to leave? Because you kind of had a little bit of savings that you put everything into the company and mm-hmm. then you raised money. So, what point did you decide to leave and how was your experience raising money? Because I know you blew through your savings quite quickly with this. Yeah, I know. I pretty much, I almost bankrupted myself because product design and manufacturing and prototyping is not so expensive. cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and I was partially surviving off of Airbnb in my apartment illegally, which my landlord found out about and I almost got evicted. I cashed out my 401k, which I later learned was a very bad idea. (laughs) I ended up paying more in taxes than I got from my 401k savings. It was bad. I remember the woman on the other line when I was cashing it out, begging me not to do it. And I was like, I don't have a choice, lady. I got to make my rent. I got to pay for my food. It's a tight situation. Um, I was actually uh, applying to be a cocktail waitress at a strip club because I thought, well, I don't have to strip, but I'd be able to make a lot of money and I can do it at night and I can like work on my startup. But no, this all happened after I quit my job. I decided to quit my job for a couple of reasons. One, I realized I just couldn't focus on building this thing on the side anymore. It had gotten to a point where it really required my full attention and focus to be able to get it off the ground. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I wouldn't be able to give it a fair shot unless I put my whole self into it. And I'm frankly miscalculated how I I had like pretty good chunk of savings and I miscalculated how expensive it was actually going to be to get this thing up and running. I also miscalculated how hard it would be to raise that those first dollars. And every investor wanted to know that I had pre-orders or sales They wanted to know how expensive it would be to make the product, but I couldn't figure out how expensive it would be to make the product until I had a manufacturer who's willing to work with me. No manufacturer wanted to work with me until they knew that I had investors backing me. (laughs) Chicken and egg. Yeah, it was a real chicken and egg problem. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because when you did quit your job and you're like, I cannot do this anymore on the side, you built the confidence. And I'd love for you to talk more about your focus on having focus groups and talking to people because I think having that response from others makes that leap so much easier and fires you up to take that. So I'd love to hear how you started really focusing on the customer even very early in the business. Yeah. Something that has been in our DNA from the start was before I quit my job, as you mentioned, I was hosting these little dinners at my apartment in San Francisco. And it was a 450-square-foot apartment. It was tiny, tiny studio. You walk in the front door and you're in my bedroom. (laughs) But I didn't call them focus groups because I didn't want to intimidate people. I just called them dinners. But I would cook like a big pot of something and then serve like cheap wine and people would dish on their periods. And this grew by word of mouth where people would tell their friends and it turned kind of into a thing. And over time, people, I started getting, I I remember there was like two or three text messages from fourth degree out of state strangers who asked me to order my product. And I was like, I don't even have a product. I don't have anything. (laughs) I am a bartender at so-and-so and and I am a cousin of so-and-so. I didn't know any, I didn't know their cousin. I had no idea how they got my phone number, but I realized like, wow, they're really, it's not just, I'm not crazy. Like all of the signs are pointing to people want something. People are desperate to try something new and something different and something that solves their period problems. And I felt very called to serve them and to help them. And it was, that that choice that I made to not give in to my fear, but instead to follow my love for helping other people that gave me the confidence to start this company. And that DNA is still in everything that we do. Our customer insights are what set us apart. And it's one thing to say that you do customer insights. It's another thing to embed and ingrain the voice of the customer in everything from your brand to your product development and really take the time to perfect things rather than rush things to market and to try to and to listen to people rather than just doing what investors as well-meaning as it might be, like might ask you or want you to do. You're never going to go wrong if you're listening to real people and like truly trying to solve their problems versus serving yourself or just going with whatever your own ideas are. So many things that consumers have told me over the years have been completely in contrast to what I thought that they would say or what someone on the team said or what someone's idea might be. It has it doesn't matter what our ideas are. It matters what other people want. And that going back to that marketing at a very young age, that's what I learned to do. And I think that is how you build a successful business is by listening to people and making something that they really need. Oh, I, I love that. And I think to your point, it's not until a customer buys your product and is actually using it that you can really learn like what tweaks do I make? Because I do think sometimes people sit too long on a product before they launch. You know, in my business, it was like, let's get it out there. Let's do the best we can. And we'll iterate as we go and think about better ways. And it's game changing. And it's also very fulfilling to know that you can meet customers' demands in certain things and change their life. So I love how it's been part of Flex's DNA, even to this level you're at 
at now, which is clearly a you know multi million dollar business. And one question that I have, you know, you mentioned raising money and having you know wanting to get that relationship with a manufacturer was like a chicken and an egg situation, and you're going there pitching this you know, menstrual disc to men who not might not necessarily know this process. And, you know, you guys were very early in this space and created this space. So how did you end up getting Y Combinator involved and then Amplify, which, you know, were two big investors for you, especially when you were at a point where you didn't have any more money. So it was either it, they would make or break you at that time. Yeah. Y Combinator was the first to write us a check. They wrote me a check for 20K. I had used their application. I encourage any startup founder, even if you're making a small business, it's worthwhile looking at Y Combinator's application. I use that to write my first business plan. And I read everything that I could. They have so many more resources online than they used to have. But they publish... um, So Paul Graham's essays have been written online for many, many years, I think from the very start. And so I read everything that he ever wrote, everything that Sam Altman ever said. (laughs) They've since built up Startup School and all these other amazing resources on YouTube and on their blog. But I wrote that business plan. I read everything that they ever had to say. And that I wasn't even planning on applying. It was after we got a little bit further where I got enough traction in terms of like product development and and having our our manufacturer in place that I got the confidence to apply. And they said, you know, you're a little bit early for us, which is funny because they're usually the first check in. I'm like, well, I'm like, I have 10,000 pre-orders. I have 10,000 people who want to buy this product. Your standard deal is 120K. I need 120K to make these pre-orders, which is really cute that I thought that that's all it would cost. But at the time, that's what I thought it would cost. (laughs) But they're like, you know, here's 20K. You have a few weeks to figure it out. But the deal is you can't work. If you take this money, you got to work on this full time. And that was the time where I was like thinking about applying to be like this cocktail waitress. And so I went to LA on a lead for a friend, like a connection through another female investor. And she connected me to Amplify and I met with them and I said, look, I applied to YC. Here's my idea. I have 10,000 pre-orders. They told me they'd give me 20K, but I can't work full time. Like I need... 120k to like make these pre-orders. Are you in or not? And they said we'll give you 200. And so that was it. I was in business, and after a few months, Amplify helped me raise just under a million dollars. And then YC invited us in to be. Well, they invited. It was me at the time. I was the only employee. Invited me <laughs> to be. <laughs> me to be in the program. Uh, and I had a couple of contractors that were working with me and asked them to to step up and join YC with me. So so yeah, that was that was kind of how we got started. And once we finished YC, we had a lot of investor interest and, and raised a follow-on round thanks to their support. It's crazy to think how that one trip to LA, you know, when you were trying to scramble for money, trying to like secure this cocktail waitress job just turned into (laughs) something that you never would have expected. You know, I mean, I love that. It's like you never know what opportunity or door will open and, you know, life is always surprising you. So that is, that is so awesome. And, you know, I'm curious, how did you get those 10,000 pre-orders before you really officially launched? Because that seems pretty amazing so early on. Oh my gosh. 
you just got to fake it till you make it sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we had landing pages and we would test different marketing language on the landing pages because there's so many different benefits to a menstrual disc. You can wear it for 12 hours. You can have mess-free period sex when it's in. You, you know, it's not linked to toxic shock syndrome. It's 100% body safe. It's vegan. Like there's all these endless benefits that you could talk about. And so I basically was like, we're testing different landing pages to say, sign up to get notified when, when we launch. That was the call to action. And we kind of figure out like how we wanted the messaging and positioning to go based on how many conversions as measured by email signups. Well, we got the idea to have, instead of just email signups, what if we try different offers? So sign up to get 50% off, sign up to get a free, and obviously having a free, like offering it for free was the fastest way. And that went viral on Reddit. We were just publishing content. At the time, Instagram was not as big as it is now. Facebook was the big thing at the time. TikTok was not around. So I'm like really dating myself. But writing Medium was kind of the hot new thing. And so I was writing blogs on Medium, posting it all over the place, posting it on Reddit. And then the idea, like the landing page and the free offer went viral on Reddit. And so we ended up going from those 10,000 pre-orders to over 200,000 signups and then TechCrunch featured us on their homepage because they saw me at a pitch and they heard me talking about our traction. So you just, you never know when those lucky breaks are going to happen, but you just have to be as prepared as you can be. The heartbreaking thing was when we went viral, the website was supposed to have launched three weeks before and the person in charge of it at the time did not <laughs> follow through. And so we went viral all over the world without a website. Um, and at the time it felt, very tra- without the ability for anyone to buy anything, which at the time felt very tragic, but we learned a lot from it. We ended up being okay in the end. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think that you had that much signups without any like paid ads, right? You were just organically writing blogs on Medium and writing in Reddit, which is just awesome to hear. At the time, you know, I'm sure you have so many examples of growing this business, whether it's now or earlier in your career. You know, there's so many challenging times, right? You just mentioned one. You guys went viral and you don't have a website. And like that just hurts my heart even to hear because I totally understand what that like. (laughs) I haven't been there, but I could just understand how heartbreaking that is when you finally are trying so hard and it pops and you don't have anything. But how do you push yourself? You know, as someone who's been in the game now for multiple years, like how do you build that resilience factor in kind of going through those tough times? Yeah, I love that question. Well, it starts with hearing all those no's from investors. I'll tell you that. that I mean, pushed you. you yeah, you just you have you can't be afraid to fail. You just can't be afraid to fail, but you've also got to learn to really listen to what's coming out of those failures and really try to examine it and rather than totally beating yourself up about it, trying to figure out the positive out of that situation, which isn't like the bad news can be the bad news. There's nothing positive when you don't have a single dollar after going viral all over the world. I mean, TechCrunch said, we broke the internet. That's literally what they wrote on their Twitter after they published the story because it was that viral. And rather than crying and belly aching over it, I you know, really had to take a moment and figure out what can we learn from this situation. And that's happened over and over and over again. And especially when you start you know, bringing other people onto your team, and, and giving responsibilities to other folks, there's people on your team who are going to make 
really, really colossally big multi-million dollar mistakes. And that is really tough, but ultimately you're the leader and you're accountable for it. So you've got to be able to like be calm and be productive and learn from that situation and communicate what you're learning with folks and help other people learn that skill too, so that you can get better and grow better from those mistakes. And that's just not being afraid of failure is the only way that you can overcome the fear of failure. And, you know, it's funny to to hear you and see where you are now. And like you said, in the beginning, you didn't even want to be the CEO of this company. So what do you think it was that really helped you kind of get to that state? Was it because no one w- was wanting to be the CEO? And you're like, I'm so passionate about this. There's a need for this. I'm just going to jump in and we'll see how it goes. Because it's just awesome to see your personal evolution over the years as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're right. Nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> That was it, plain and simple. Nobody else wanted to do it. And I felt like, gosh, well, I guess that has to be me. And again, that passion and that calling to help other people is what got me over the line. But I realized as time has gone on that there, I think women in particular, and not to just like make it only a gender thing, but something that I've just observed and helping mentor so many different early stage founders through All Raise, which is an organization I work with. And I was one of their very early mentors. It's focused on female identifying entrepreneurs in particular. It's something I don't really hear from their male counterparts is a lot of this self-doubt of not being ready uh, or feeling like there's a perfect time. But also we're told that we're not ready. When I quit my job, I was called by two executives who said, you know, you haven't even been a CMO before. How are you going to be a CEO? They since have called me and apologized for those remarks And I knew that they were really well-meaning. It broke my heart at the time because I looked up to them more than anyone else in the world. They were two of my mentors. And I thought, you know, if my mentors believe this about me, like how could I not see this in myself? Obviously, there's something totally wrong with me, fundamentally broken. (laughs) Like we all feel like there might be something like wrong with us that everyone else can see except for us. But I think in that we fail to see all of our strengths and fail to play to our strengths if we're always like it's a balance. Yeah, you got to focus on the areas that you're not great at, but also you got to be able to lean into those strengths. So my superpower has always been listening to other, you know, being an empathetic listener. And in that, I knew I'd be on the right path as long as I was kind of following what consumers were, were telling me that they really wanted. Yeah. So just having those consumers close to you was just giving you the confidence to kind of push through, you know, those really tough meetings. And what I appreciate about you is, like you said, just how level headed you are. I know you've talked about a few of those meetings and instances with investors. And I'm sure as a growing business, always make mistakes. And it's so important to be even keeled in that situation. So that's just, you know, definitely a superpower of yours. And you mentioned, you know, so many women want to make sure everything is perfect. And to be fair, I used to be like that until I worked for a startup. And, you know, this was like, he was a second time entrepreneur. We raised 15 million without a product, right? It was on an idea. And I remember sitting there, I was head of product at the time. And I was like, wow, everyone is just figuring things out as they go. Even someone who is a second time entrepreneur. So just to have like, see that whether you work at a startup or hear conversations like your background and hearing these stories, I think, you know, really hope, I hope that enables women to be a little bit more confident because we're all figuring it out. And like the main string that everybody says is you just need to be passionate about what you're doing, like genuinely, right? Because it gets hard. And what's and like, why would you do this to yourself if you didn't love what you were bringing to life, (laughs) right? Like it'd be torture. It's torture. 
Yeah, yeah, you got to be really passionate about it. And people are, you know, people start companies for lots of different reasons. People can be passionate about the problem. People can be, you know, want it for fame. People can want it for money. There's a whole different variety of reasons that people start companies. I think they're all valid. They don't all apply. Certainly, they don't all apply to me. The last thing I ever wanted was to be the face of this company. I'm like very much a behind the scenes person. But yeah, whatever, any of those things, there's nothing wrong with any of them. It's just being honest with yourself about what it is that you're passionate about in that. And that'll carry you and get you through it. And if you're, you know, even in an instance, if you're like in it for the glory, knowing that there is no glory in the early days and figuring out a way to like get someone who does want to actually run the company for you. That is a very valid way of starting a business is getting someone who is going to be the COO or the CEO. And then you are the face of the company because that's what you're really passionate about. That lots of businesses start that way. Like so many businesses that start in social media with someone being an influencer, right? And they have like an idea or a passion, but they might not necessarily want to run the business. They want to be the face of the business. Use those skills. That's valid too. But just being honest with yourself about what what aspects of it you're passionate about, I think is also really important. Yeah. And, you know, on the string of you mentoring and seeing a lot of female entrepreneurs, what do you think are some of the mistakes that they're making outside of just not having that belief and confidence? I think one would be uh, to not leverage, you know, since everyone is really just trying to figure things out for the first time, I think if you're not leveraging a lot of those amazing resources that are already out there and online, then you might run into a lot of the same traps that we, we all run into like the same traps, honestly. And I felt very fortunate. I had never heard of Y Combinator <laughs> until I did. Right. And like somebody pointed me in that direction and I found this wealth of resources and then couldn't stop reading and learning. Right. Somebody pointed me to a book called Venture Deals and a book called The Founder's Dilemmas. Um, those two books were absolutely instrumental in helping me understand like what I was actually getting into. If I wanted to raise venture capital and what I was getting into, if I wanted to bring on co-founders and how I wanted to set up the legal structure of the company. So not leveraging the resources that are already out there is one mistake. Waiting too long to launch, that's another really big mistake, right? Getting out there and getting the feedback. Really, 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 really listening to the feedback is another one. There is a lot of trusting your gut. And one thing that's tough is if you're doing something truly different and new and innovative, there isn't anyone else to look to. There isn't anyone else to kind of any other model to go off of. And so in that, you are kind of coming up with everything as you go along. But at the same time, if you aren't like applying like critical listening, you're only going through confirmation bias, which a lot of people do. Like it's just human, it's just human nature. Like we all have confirmation bias. I have confirmation bias. You have everyone listening has confirmation bias, (laughs) but just being honest about that and then pulling yourself out of your own idea or your own brand, whatever it may be. I've seen someone like so in love with this like logo that they made for this company and like their product is phenomenal. I tried their product. The product's amazing. I loved it. I'm like, this could be huge, but like the name and like the logo was just, and the logo was like critical to the brand. I'll just put it that way. It was just so off putting (laughs) 
<laughs> but they were like, no, but I have to, you know, I've, I've, I'm like, I don't know if you're really listening to people. Like it's a consumer product, but you've really got to nail that stuff. So I think just like listening to, especially if you find yourself prickling at the feedback you're getting, that's when you should be listening extra hard. And I think that's where a lot of people I, I see common mistakes of people not being able to get past that super early idea stage. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. And I've seen that a lot with friends too, if they have tried a certain business model that doesn't work after a few years, like versus them pivoting, they're just so stuck on the idea. And it's like, well, it's not a business if there's no market for it. So like, why don't you tweak it or try it? So I think that's a great point that you're bringing up and the importance of listening to your gut. Cause you're right. When you are disrupting an, an industry, of course, you know, there's so many mentors and you have customers to speak to and people giving you advice, but there's no one that's telling you the right exact next step. And you know, what I realize is that you might put people on a pedestal, but they don't know your business. No one knows the right answer. And I see myself like always reaching out to people and getting advice. And to your point, it's like important to just take a step back, listen to your gut, get all that feedback, right? And really make the right... I mean, of course, you might fail sometimes, but like try to make that right decision that feels good to you. But the whole concept of listening to your gut, I hear it every interview with women like yourself. So clearly, there's something there that I'm also trying to implement in my life. But I think that's super, super important. And you know, one thing I'd love to talk about before we close the interview in a bit, you know, the first year in business, you did $4 million, which is phenomenal. I'm sure there's so much that goes into that. But I'd love to hear, you know, what do you think were some of those early indicators that really helped you get to such a scale so, so early in the business? I appreciate that. The, we did not overly rely on paid marketing. And that discipline that we had to build that very first year, just out of pure necessity, we had we own our own manufacturing equipment that is very expensive. Our, we are manufacturing a medical device in a clean room that is extraordinarily expensive. We have FDA approvals. We have all, we have to hold inventory. Like all these things cost a lot, lot, lot of money. And, you know, we sell our product for $8.99, $9.99. Wow. <laughs> a piece. Yeah. So you have to sell a lot of those to get to $4 yes. million, dollars, right? You've got wow. you to sell a lot. <laughs> and we just had to have the discipline to grow organically because we just, it was out of necessity because we, ha- we couldn't attract investor dollars. And even after we hit $4 million our first year, we still people weren't that impressed with it. I think like we were able to demonstrate, however, in the next two years that 85% of our acquisition was coming organically. That told people something. We could show repeat purchases. That really said something. We were showing our NPS or net promoter score way, way higher than any industry benchmark. That was really demonstrating something. And so through that discipline of having to build an organic marketing engine and like a product that was really sticky and product that was being sold by word of mouth and referrals, that enabled us to then raise the money to be able to do paid acquisition. But as soon as we got the money to do paid acquisition, you better believe that every dollar that I spent, I was getting three or more back. And so I had that threshold for the team where we had to be profitable as soon as we can. We became profitable two years after we launched, which I'm super proud of. But again, it was out of necessity. <laughs> and a lot of founders who identify as women will find themselves in a similar position, especially if you're selling a product that's made and marketed to people that don't look like or act like your investors. So just be aware of it. But that discipline will pay off in space. It'll pay off in making you a stronger entrepreneur. It'll pay off in you building a team that is business-minded and focused. 
it will pay off in terms of hopefully the amount of ownership that you can command in your own company over time because you're not you're not chasing growth at all costs. Yes. And, you know, I'm curious because you also raised money, a little bit of money early on. Were your investors kind of on board with the growth? I mean, it's still a lot of growth, but, you know, there's different demands and different perspectives around putting money towards marketing dollars. And it seems like you really thought about the foundation of the business. So how was it tough having investors early on or did you find the right people to support you with the way you wanted to build the business? I found the right people to support me in the way that I wanted to run the business. The first thing that I cared about was values alignment. So I really made sure that I was looking for investors like that. I also knew that this was not a market that was guaranteed going to be big overnight, right? We're creating a new category. I made up the words menstrual disc. Like now lots of Companies yeah. use the word menstrual disc. <laughs> I love it wasn't that. a thing. I mean, we wow. were joking around. Should we call it vagina frisbee? I'm not kidding. <laughs> so, you know, before there were menstrual discs or vagina frisbees, you could just like make up some random words. No one's looking for that. No one's trying to buy it. No one even thinks that they have a problem with their tampons or pads, right? So if you're starting there, you've got to get investors who understand that, believe it, and know that it's not, you know, you're not building this business to you know, do like 10x revenue in three years. I mean, we did more than that, but like I was not making those promises early on. And so I wasn't raising money like that either. I had more of a an ambitious but realistic plan. And I found investors that liked the way that I was running the business. Yeah. And, you know, and last question I want to end with, you, which is, this is amazing. You know, you did coin the term, the disc, you created a whole industry and, you know, how did you educate women? Because you've made a really good point. You know, a lot of people don't realize that they're suffering or that there is another option. So I love to hear your perspective around how you really educated women that there could be a better way and to use this, you know, new product that they've never even heard of. Yeah. A humor is key. <laughs> Humor has just been the the key and everyone has an embarrassing period story and every menstruator has some kind of horror story. And we, our very first like, most successful paid asset was an ad on YouTube. And I had a couple of friends who had experience making these like viral videos about other stuff on YouTube, like forever and a day ago. And I worked with them and we like wrote a script and we spent $10,000 and we spent a weekend shooting this thing. And that video brought us like over $15 million. Oh my gosh, Lauren. Yeah, it was crazy. And that was our first of many viral videos. But if you understand your customer (laughs) and our customer appreciates humor. What? Who doesn't? But, you know, there's a fine line between tasteful period humor and yes, true. period humor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it all goes back to knowing your customer. Yeah. Well, I love that, Lauren. And lastly, you know, what's next for Flex? What gets you excited? I mean, you guys are always creating and bringing out new products, but would love to just get your final thoughts. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I told you from the very, 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 very early days, I wanted to make a plant-based disc. And this week we just released our plant-based disc. I'm so proud of it. We also released earlier this year a 100% reusable disc, which I'm also very proud of because we know that people, a lot of people use single-use discs when they're out on the go. They might use a reusable disc on the weekend or when they're at home or working from home. But we have another new product we've been working on for years. We're releasing next year, which is in a different but adjacent category. It's a menstrual product. 
which we're very excited about. And beyond that, um, we're launching in one international market this year. We have our eyes set to a couple more. So thinking a lot about how to help people in other markets have the most comfortable period of their lives. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm so excited for you. I feel like the world, you just have so much more opportunity, even though you're still killing it right now to just help so many women. And, you know, we'll put all the details of where people can find you and flex in our show notes. But Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. No, I had a blast. Thank you so much. And thanks for all of your thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.